Hello and welcome to episode three of the Ladiga Brothers Talk. Today we are going to talk about a subject that we were due to talk about two weeks ago, but I'm actually glad that we couldn't at that time because so much has changed in the last two weeks and it kind of sets up how much is probably going to change as the next few months go on regarding this very important global topic of vaccines. Welcome, Richard. Hi there. Yes, glad to uh, glad to be going over this important subject today. Um, there's a lot of information that we need to get through. So hopefully, you know, as always, the links are going to be added. People can check this stuff out for themselves. Um, you can't you can't obviously take what we're saying as as the truth. Um, and the same goes for most of the information that we come across. It's it's an idea for everybody to to follow things up when you're dealing with important topics. Um, but yeah, let me just clarify at the start that any information you hear from us today is not um, to be used as medical advice. Um, please seek your usual means of medical um, medical information and medical help, whether it's natural natural um, homeopathy or Western allopathic medicine. Please always seek your usual source of medical advice. Absolutely. And I think the other important thing to talk about before we kick off today about vaccines, it's important to say that we are not here to say whether you should or shouldn't take the vaccine or whether we think the vaccine is good or not good. All we are going to do and what we want to try and do with these podcasts is just give you the other side of the coin. I think all of us will have to agree on some level. If you just stick with the mainstream media, you will just get one narrative. And if you believe that narrative, that is absolutely fine. There is no issues with that. But some people, they like to hear the other side. Science isn't just one way. Scientists aren't all the same. People have different views on things. But I just feel that the mainstream media, particularly here in the UK, shows just one version with just one set of scientists, one set of doctors. So all we're trying to do is just throw a few ideas your way and then you guys can take that away from you and do with it what you will. What we will do, though, is we are going to kick off with, before we get right into the vaccines, we kind of need to take a step back and go to the testing that comes with COVID. Because obviously, the reason that we are going through vaccines um, and people are getting vaccinated is because they are taking and people have taken COVID PCR tests over the last year. People have been diagnosed with COVID and we're now at a point where so many people have tested for it, so many people have passed away from it that we have gone from the PCR testing to needing a vaccine for COVID. Now, the PCR test, I'm sure most of you have done it. I myself haven't had to do one yet. Um, but what I will kick off with is the actual founder of the PCR test. He himself said that the PCR test is not fit for purpose for detecting the coronavirus. Richard, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so that, that the guy you're speaking of, the inventor of the PCR test, uh, American Nobel Prize winner called Carrie Mulis. He's not with us anymore. But yeah, he um, invented this method in order for scientists to be able to study very, very, very tiny viruses um, or very tiny um, particles or molecules. His, his PCR invention, what it does is it takes something that's extremely small and it amplifies it uh, in terms of size. It increases the size. But 
um, whilst you're increasing the size of that tiny, um, tiny virus, anything that it is connected to, because all viruses um, are connected to a host, anything that it's connected to is also amplified. So the reliability of the test goes down the larger the amplification. So the more you amplify um, the PCR test, then the more unreliable the test is going to become. And they do amplification based on um, multiplication. So how many times are you increasing the size of the specimen? And if, right. you, increase, if you increase the size more than 25, according to some reports, even more than 17 times, then you start to really reduce the reliability of it. Dr. Fauci in America said 35 times at that point onwards, it should be the cutoff. It's not reliable. And allegedly over here and in a lot of places, the amplification has been 45 times. So well over what's believed to be reliable, meaning, um, you know, we do end up seeing quite high false positive rate. I think 50% is generally considered <laughs> at the moment. Uh, across the sort of mainstream media, 50%. Mm. Um, and it could be even be as high as 90% as a Dr. Paul Birrell statistician um, at uh, Cambridge University has agreed with a question put to him um, on a talk radio show. The mm. question put to him was, could it be that 90% of, um, of tests could be false positives? And he said that if you take random people in the community totally random then it could be 90 percent uh false positive meaning you know if you take 100 people 90 of them will be told they're positive when they're not and only 10 would actually be positive he said if you take a random group of people that could be the case the only time the the um false positive comes down and becomes more accurate is when you go into a community where you supposedly know there's lots of covid then in that situation the false positive could be lower but anyway it, it, is a, it, is, it is a known fact. Um, a lot of the tests are incorrect. And um, the another thing is, I've just related that article from the BBC. Here's another BBC article. And it says here, the headline on the BBC dated the 5th of September, 2020, coronavirus tests could be picking up dead virus. So dead virus, that's not um, transmissible. That's not harmful. The test could also be picking that up. So as as we started off, Kerry Mullis said this is not to be used to diagnose. He said himself, his own words, it will not tell you if you're sick. Um, so that's one thing. The false positives range potentially up to 90% incorrect. And the test could be picking up dead viruses. So those are things to consider. Quite big things, I think, that need to be considered. Definitely. And it's interesting that you've quoted from the BBC and having just said about the mainstream media. I think what people need to understand is that the mainstream media will throw out these snippets of what is going on uh, in terms of things like the virus. The problem that you have is, is that the main part of what they're trying to do is stick with the government's narrative and the government scientists and the government's doctors. Um, like any sort of media outlet, you are going to have to let snippets out of other parts of things like the fact that you can pick up dead, non-transmissible viruses. But if you notice, the majority of people would not have seen that on the BBC unless you went looking for it. If you went looking for the amount of people that have died from coronavirus in the BBC, you will find that at the moment you click onto their front page. So it is important to understand that they're not hiding these things from you. They are putting them out there, but 
it's in a way where it's not quite as obvious for you. And that's what we want to kind of bring to light. Judging from what Richard said, it sort of appears that the PCR test isn't fit for purpose, which means then are we looking at an inflation of the amount of cases that the government are giving us of the amount of people that have had COVID? Then in turn, you add to that the fact that you've got people having on their death certificate that they passed away from COVID if they tested within 28 days of a positive test, they died from it. That then brings us to the fact that we are now going into a place where with all these potentially inflated numbers, we are going to take on a vaccine. What are some of the first things we need to think about when we come into a point where a vaccine is going to be administered to the whole world, Richard? Um, I suppose what you'd want to do is you'd want to look at the particular vaccine that's on the market that is on offer and, you know, take a look, look at it for yourself. You need to check for yourself. Are you happy with the ingredients? Do you know if you are allergic to any of the ingredients? Have the full ingredients list been even um, given to you? First and foremost, what was the process of the testing, um, the trial? How did the trial go? How extensive was the animal trial? Um, and how did the human trials go? What were the results of the human trials in terms of, you know, um, reducing transmission, uh, which actually they didn't, um, they did not set reducing transmission as a target for the vaccine trial. So they, they, you know, the vaccine makers themselves have said, we was not looking to see whether or not this vaccine that we're making reduces the transmission, they were only looking to see if it reduced symptoms. But um, looking at the trial, looking at previous history, and then you'd get down to um, the regulators who decide whether or not the vaccine should be given to the public. Now, over in America and over here, I think it's been given emergency approval. It's not been fully approved, which means when it's fully approved, independent scientists and our regulators will do their own trials. Yes. Because, it, because it's an emergency, nobody else has done their own trials. We are just mm. following the results from the vaccine makers' trials. Um, so our regulators, for example, MHRA, the Medicines and Health um, Regulatory Agency, um, I've come across a couple of conflicts of interest, which, again, you know, these are things that people need to think about. There's two non-executive directors here who have shares, currently have shares in AstraZeneca. Non-executive director Amanda Calvert, another non-executive director, Anne Tony Rogers. The link to this um, conflict of interest um, document, again, will be added. People can check for themselves. You can look these people up. Um, Another important point in terms of the vaccine, I think, would be, um, yeah, well, following on, sorry, following on from that conflict of interest, if you were to go to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, website, they have a page where they list the grants that they, you know, give to different bodies, different governments, and, you know, even the media. And you can type in and see um, quite a lot of money has been donated to our regulatory agency the mhra in 2020 there's an amount for nearly nine hundred thousand dollars um another amount in the same year for five hundred thousand um, dollars 
2019, 2018. The list is, is really long. This is one page. I'm not sure if there's any more pages. Um, but yeah, a lot of money has been handed um, handed over in, in the form of a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who have heavily invested in vaccines. So what you've got is you have a, a group who financially benefits from the sale of vaccines who are giving grants to the agency that approves the vaccines. So that's a conflict of interest that people should also look into. Is that, is that um, okay? Are they, are, are, is everybody happy about that? So um, again, to, to, put it, to put it simply, you've got a few people in the MHRA who have a vested interest in potentially putting through a vaccine that they are not 100% sure about. Obviously, we're not saying that's what they've done. We're saying that they might well have full belief in this vaccine. But on the flip side, most of us, if you have a vested interest in something working for financial gain, could that potentially sway you? Who knows? I mean, speaking of those sorts of conflicts of interest, the other big thing for me um, that flags up red is the lack of indemnity for the vaccine makers. Now, in short, and I'll get Richard to go on further with this, it basically means that no matter what happens to you or one of your loved ones after you've taken the vaccine, you have no recourse to get anything back from the vaccine makers. Is that why, Richard? Yeah, that's correct. There was a, a, a law passed in the US in the mid-80s um, because the vaccine makers were causing harm, they were causing injuries, and they were being sued um, huge, huge amounts of money. And um, they basically went to, I think, the Congress and said, we're going to stop making vaccines. We are. N- it's not worth it anymore unless you give us full liability, which, which they were granted. Um, we over here have given them the same immunity so they cannot be sued if anything goes wrong, whether it's minor, major, um, you can't go to the vaccine makers and recover any compensation from them. There are funds set up by governments using taxpayers' money. So essentially, if you are harmed, you will be using your own money um, that you've put into the tax system and all, all of the rest of us around who pay into the tax system. But the makers themselves are totally immune so that raises questions of, you know, in terms of business and business ethics, if there's, let's say, two ingredients, one's far more expensive, but a lot safer, um, there's an ingredient you could put in that's far more expensive, but much safer versus an ingredient that you could put in that's a lot cheaper and less safe. What, what do you think happens in the world of business? Um, are you, you know, are you happy knowing that safety measures and safety guidelines don't really need to be of paramount importance for the makers as they, they can't be touched. But I just wanted to finish that last point to do with, um, uh, to do with conflicts of interest. Also, you know, everybody needs to know if they don't already, Patrick Valance, Sir Patrick Valance, chief scientific officer, has got 600,000 pounds of shares in GlaxoSmithKline who own Pfizer. So again, there's another big conflict of interest there. 
Um, and obviously, everybody knows what has gone on with Matt Hancock and um, PPE contracts and, um, you know, his unlawful behavior. So, yeah, just finishing off that conflict of interest as well. It, it runs it runs through all elements of government and agency and, uh, and media. Um, but yes, the indemnity, Andrew, yeah, the indemnity um, that vaccine makers have is an important thing for people to think about. Absolutely. I mean, so if we just break it down as we go along here, so we've got the conflicts of interest, which, you know, some of the names that you threw out there earlier, um, Amanda and Anthony, for example, they won't be names or household names to people. But uh, Matt Hancock and Patrick Valance are the guys you've been seeing standing up by those lecterns telling you exactly what you need to do for the last year. And it transpires that while you are sitting at home, um, not earning any money potentially or not seeing your family or friends, these guys are making a pretty penny potentially off the fact that these vaccines are going to go through. Once again, maybe not. Maybe they have only your best interests at heart and it's not about them. But the question has to be raised. If you have a vested interest in these things, you know, there has to be a part that's played into it where will you really be completely honest about where you should go with it? Um, the other thing, the other big thing is that this is by far not the first vaccine that anyone's ever had to take. Vaccines have been around as long as time. Have vaccines always worked and always been safe, Richard? Um, no, I mean, even vaccine makers themselves will say that they're not 100% safe. So that's not even an argument. It's not even a question. It's a clear, it's a clear admission. So it's just a question of, well, how much damage uh, have they caused or do they cause in history in the past? And, um, you know, there's at least, you know, a couple of cases that we'll quickly touch on now. One was in 1976, a long time ago. But um, in 1976, there was another uh, fast rollout and um, and that resulted in the vaccine being recalled after only a few months. I think what happened was 50 people died um, after the rollout. Uh, it was, yeah, it was cut short after only 10 weeks. 50 people died and I think 500 contracted uh, an illness that can leave you paralyzed, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. So that, that vaccine story didn't go very well. Um, neither did the one in 2009, where 60 young children in the UK were given a swine flu vaccine and ended up developing narcolepsy, which then meant, um, you know, the narcolepsy, which is, you know, you fall asleep um, at yeah. any point in the day. You have no control over that. Yes. Makes it almost impossible to have a regular a regular life in terms of driving, working or anything like that. So they were awarded they were awarded by the, the taxpayer, by the government, a million pounds each for the sixty children. That's just two cases. I'm sure if somebody spent half an hour, um, they could probably come up with another few cases. Um and vaccine courts, there is a there is a vaccine court set up in the US which to date, from the 80s, has paid out for over $4 billion. Over $4 billion in compensation. Again, that would be taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. Has been paid out in these vaccine courts. And it's widely believed it is a very difficult process to even get your case to court, let alone win. So the $4 billion is probably a drop in the ocean of the real damage that mm -hmm. may have been caused. So 
these are all documented um, and people can look into this for themselves. So, yeah, it is a question of, yeah, we know they are not 100% safe. The question is, well, how unsafe, how risky is this procedure? Is this decision for people? And again, getting a bit closer to home, I mean, you know, I think a lot more people might be aware of the MMR vaccine that you give to your children and a massive link that they talk about with autism within the MMR vaccine. Um, and again, it's it's very much debatable as to, you know, again, the truth behind it. But um, certainly people do link the MMR jab to autism in children. Um, and people can't just be saying that. Parents can't just be saying that just for the sake of saying it. So you're right, that vaccines and, you know, the way that they work aren't always safe. Um, something that interests me about it is, what do you feel about the marketing campaign that has gone with this vaccine? If we're in a place where we have a deadly virus that is killing people off around the world, would that not be enough to get people to take the vaccine without having to have a marketing and advertising campaign to go with it, Richard? You would you would imagine, wouldn't you? Especially when you're looking at um, frontline healthcare workers who, in in quite high numbers, are are not accepting the vaccine. Now, these are the people that would have spent the past year supposedly, you know, looking at a hellish. A hellish, horrible, probably the worst year of their working careers in terms of the damage and the destruction caused by COVID. So with that in mind, I don't understand why any healthcare worker who's been through that would turn down the vaccine. Um, I, I can't get my head around that. Um, but yeah, I just but the MMR thing that you touched on, there, there was a, a Centers for Disease Control whistleblower mm who risked a lot and came out to say that they, the Centers for Disease Control um, hid the true results in terms of is there a link? Is there a link between MMR vaccine and autism? And the, the results of the studies that were conducted were, were, were changed to make it seem as though there wasn't a link. And this whistleblower came out and he went to a lot of trouble to, to come out and expose this that um, you know, the doctor, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, yes. who who highlighted this in the UK, was exonerated because you know his fears were were shown to be correct. And apparently, very very recently, the CDC has removed the the sort of comment that says there's no link. Mm. They've now they, they used to have a, a page that said there's no link between autism and MMR, and a, and, and allegedly they've now removed that. Um, so yeah, that MMR autism link again isn't so straightforward at all. It's, so... in, it's interesting with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. I watched his actual documentary regarding the whole thing of MMR and autism, and it's called Vaxed. Very, very hard to get hold of. Very hard to see um, on your regular internet, as you can imagine. But just to to go along with that, what you also find is a lot because even though he was exonerated. If you look him up on the internet, he has still been um, made to look like and be, look like he's defamatory um, and as if he has been um, blacklisted from any sort of work as a doctor. And it's interesting that anyone that comes forward 
with a different view to what the normal narrative is, is looked upon and frowned upon as not knowing what they're doing in their job, um, even though he was exonerated. So this is why it's really important to listen out. And, and also, I've heard a lot of people use the term follow the money. You know, if somebody has no link, no financial gain from a vaccine or from whatever it might be, they might be worth listening to because, again, they're going to be 50-50 down the line. There's no gain te- for them telling you to have it or not to have it. Whereas if you've got a financial implication and you're telling someone to have it, well, you know, that might not be um, as big a deal for them in telling you the negative side as it is telling the positive side. Like I've said all the way through, might be absolutely fine and they're putting your safety first. But all we're saying to you guys is to just ask yourself the question and have a look at some of the guys who have no skin in the game and may just be looking out for your best interests also. So speaking about the CDC, you just spoke about those, Richard. Um, tell me about a little bit about VARS. Yeah, so VARS, um, spelt V-A-E-R-S, um, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. So on the Centers for Disease Control website, it takes a little bit of, um, you know, clicking through different pages. Um, but they, don't, they don't make it easy, do they? So that, yeah, they don't, make, they don't make it easy. But yeah, we'll, we'll, again, we're going to add a link. And I've just pulled it up for today's stats. And um, so far in the US, 1,100 people have died after taking COVID-19 vaccines, 1,100 people. Um, you know, and obviously, generally what we're hearing at the moment is, well, coincidence, or it's probably in line with the amount of people that would die anyway. And I just find that very interesting because that narrative is the total opposite of the COVID-19 death narrative. You don't hear any admission that, well, some of these numbers are normal, even though people are dying on average, according to the Times newspaper, people in the UK are dying on average from COVID at the age of 82, slightly higher than life expectancy. Um, So, yeah, uh, yeah, people should have a look at the V-A-E-R-S website and just keep an eye. There's a whole host of, um, of side effects um, as a result of, you know, administering this jab. Uh, I think they're talking about, I think over there they've got the Pfizer and Moderna. I'm not sure if they're using AstraZeneca. Um, but let me just go up to cardiac, um, cardiac, cardiac. There's quite a few here fibrillation, um, cardiac failure, 23, cardiac arrest, 155. So it has a whole list of different um, different adverse events. And we've got the similar thing here. I will just bring up. So over here, the MHRA on the government's website, they have um, what they term the yellow card reporting system. And you can, again, get on get online and check that out for yourself. So over here in the UK, the Pfizer vaccine has caused, unfortunately, today up to 227 fatalities and 94,000 adverse reactions. Um, and the AstraZeneca up to today... Unfortunately, it has led to 275 fatal outcomes and 
over 200,000 um, total side effects after taking the AstraZeneca drug. So these, these are places that people need to you know, bear in mind as well as the other side, which is protect those around you, protect yourself. Um, these are safe, 95% effective. Um, everything else that we hear, you know, day in, day out, day in, day out. You, the other side of things is, well, what, what's actually happening on the ground to people? Um, and yeah, we, we don't hear a lot about we don't hear a lot about these these results. What's uh, really interesting is that I said at the top of the episode that um, we were meant to to uh, record this show two weeks ago, but a few things came up, so we're recording it now, and we are talking about what has happened just in the last two weeks. Um, and the big thing that is in the news this last few days, 16th of March, 2021, is a lot of countries are temporarily putting on hold the rollout of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine due to blood clots. Now, interestingly, I saw someone on social media posted up something along the lines of um, you notice how all the COVID deniers didn't want to believe the mainstream media about the numbers of deaths to do with COVID, but now want to believe the mainstream media regarding the number of deaths to do with the vaccine. And I don't think this particular issue is about the mainstream media, because if whole governments of countries like Ireland and Germany and Holland whole governments, the people in charge of looking after their people, are pulling this vaccine. That's not about what the media want you to believe or not to believe. That's about a government wanting to look out for its people. What are your thoughts on AstraZeneca being temporarily pulled in some of those countries, Rich? Yeah, it's it's obviously... Um, I, don't know, I don't know if worry is the correct word. I don't, you know, I don't want to worry, especially all the people who've had it over here. Worry is probably not the correct word, but they're they're cautious. You know, governments are understandably cautious when you when you look into the effects on your citizens. And it's not just governments; it would be it would be their scientists, it would be their medical professionals that are speaking to the government and um, helping them come to this decision. But you know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and um, and call myself a COVID denier because I'm not and I'm not going to engage in, you know, you guys over there versus me over here. We're all, we're all in the same boat. I, I, I'm not going to be pulled into I'm against the media or I'm not against the media and you believe this and now you're changing your tune. It's just infighting, which I don't have time for. Um, we don't have time as a country as a society, as the human race, to be infighting, um, you know, trying to tit for tat. So, yeah, I'm not going to even go into... All, all I know is, in terms of the mainstream media, it's about interpretation, and there's no harm in me looking into something and interpreting it a different way, and somebody else looking into it and interpreting it their way, and let's have a discussion and be friends at the end, what what's the problem here? There's there's I have no issue with the uh, the idea of jumping on any bandwagon. I'm just I'm just using a critical mind, um, and and that's 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 it. Absolutely, and I think um, the thing that you've got to bear in mind here is is that some of our own family and friends and loved ones have already taken the vaccine. We've not attempted to stop them from taking the vaccine. We might have touched upon having conversations about our differing views on the vaccine. 
But at the end of the day, what you don't want is you don't want to get into arguments with your family and friends over COVID and vaccines, yes and no, because that's just not going to end well. We've all got to just ride out this storm. I think Richard is right on a certain level. Um, I feel we're more in the same storm. We're just not in the same boats. You know, some of us are in super yachts. Some of us are in mm. rowing boats. Some of us are <laughs> struggling along in a dinghy boat. We're all in the same storm but you've got to sort your own boat out and get us, and let's all get to the end of the storm, whether that be on that super yacht, whether that be in your rowing boat. As long as you all get to the end of the storm, whichever route you've taken, whether that be via having a vaccine or not having a vaccine, let's just all get to the end, but let's just take an opportunity to look at the varying different ways that we might be able to get there. Um, on that note, Rich, there were a... So, you know, we talk about Patrick Valance, Chris Ritty. Matt Hancock, Jonathan Van Tam, the guys over here in the UK that stand up at the lectern next to Boris Johnson and tell us why we should have the vaccine and why COVID's a killer and so on and so forth. But um, we have stumbled across a couple of very, very highly regarded scientists and immunologists who are coming off a different hymn sheet, haven't we? Yeah, we do. Um, an award-winning virologist. He um, is, is a German doctor and... Apparently, he's the most cited virologist in his field, meaning his peers, all other virologists across the board, have used his research papers and have quoted him more than any other virologist. So it, it puts him potentially as the top virologist, or if not, at least one of the top in the world to be speaking about this current pandemic. His name is Dr. Sukarit Bakti, and that is... S-U-C-H-A-R-I-T, and his surname is B-H-A-K-D-I. People need to look him up. He said from um, quite early on that when you have uh, an, a disease that has a 99% survival rate, it's impossible to work out whether or not a vaccine is successful. Because if you have a 99% survival rate, and a vaccine comes along and that goes from 99% to 99.5, that's a 0.5% increase, which is totally insignificant. You've no idea whether or not this is anything to do with the vaccine or, or anything else. Um, he's also highlighted the, the risks from taking it, which are um, because, you know, based on what he has said, it's not just antibodies that we use to fight off infections before we even get to using our antibodies, we will use something that he calls um, killer lymphocytes. Killer lymphocytes will go and attack not just the virus, but a killer lymphocyte will take down the cell in your body that has the virus. The killer mm. lymphocytes kill our own cells. So if our cells, sorry, if the killer lymphocytes spot, um, that a cell appears to be infected with a virus because that virus in the cell will produce waste product. And the waste product, the killer lymphocytes spots and realizes something's not right with this cell. They will take down that cell. And that's what happens across the body. And then it's your antibodies, according to these experts, it's your antibodies that come along and do like a cleanup job. So what he said is, Taking this vaccine, which will turn your body into um, an antibody factory, as many 
you know, Bill Gates and many other people have said, your body will become an antibody factory. Your cells will produce its own antibodies. According to Dr. Bhakti, what will happen is your killer lymphocytes will be downregulated. They will be almost shut off. So your body will be okay dealing with COVID-19 because those antibodies that you are creating are designed to deal with COVID-19. But your body may be downregulated and less good or less um, efficient at attacking any variant Mm. or any other virus, even a cold. Because for a very, very long period of time, this injection will be working in your body. They don't know how long it will work for. It may, it, it could be a permanent, a permanent change whereby you are constantly making antibodies against the spike protein for COVID-19. And if you're constantly making antibodies against the spike protein for COVID-19, you could, um, you could be shutting off um, your immune system that is very good at dealing with everything else. So that that's that's a huge and uh, along with him we have I mean you talk about anti-vaxxers right this guy has made vax this neck this other doctor he has made vaccines he's made vaccines for GlaxoSmithKline his name is Gert Vanden Bosch he's recently come out as well and has spoken against against the vaccine and the dangers of it and he if I read out some of his um, his CV. GlaxoSmithKline Biologicals. He was a senior project leader for adolescent vaccine projects, a new biotech vaccine development. He was the head of adjuvant technologies, something that goes into vaccines. Um, And he moved on to Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics. Uh, He was a director there, program leader and head of adjuvants. Again, adjuvants is what they put into vaccines. Um, there's another job here, Solvoy, Solvay Biologicals. He worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He worked for Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Gavi, Univac, Vaccine Maker. He is, you can't get more pro-vaccine than this doctor who has worked in there for who knows how many years, but for many, many, many vaccine makers. He has come out and reiterated the same thing that Dr. Bakti has been saying, which is, the antibodies that we're going to be making for anyone who takes this vaccine, the antibodies that we're going to be making will be overpowering your own immune system. And your own immune system will be downregulated when it comes to any type of variant. Um, and he's also worried. And he's, he's, written a, he's written an open letter to, I think, the European Medicines Agency who across Europe have um, approved the vaccines. He's written an open letter saying they need to stop the rollout. So... It doesn't, it doesn't get much more sort of controversial as we're sort of finding ourselves in now. You, you're de- first, we were, first, we were dealing with very qualified medical doctors from around the world um, expressing concern. Um, and now we're getting to a point where there's hundreds of them, if not thousands of them, especially when you talk about the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, you're talking about thousands of doctors who are uh, who are concerned. And now we're actually getting into the point where the top of the creme de la creme, so to speak, the top of the of, of virology and the top of vaccine makers are also coming out. So me personally, um, if I'm making a decision between these thousands of doctors and these top two and Chris Whitty, 
and Patrick Valence, I, I, I think it's obvious to everybody listening where, where my personal opinion is. It's interesting. You, you mentioned Dr. Sikorit Bhakti, um, and I've just finished reading a book by him and Dr. Karina Weiss, um, and it is called Corona, the Full Salam. And it is a really, really good book. Um, gives you lots of facts and figures. Uh, it's it's a it's not so much about the vaccine. It's much more about uh, like we spoke about in our previous podcast about mask wearing and asymptomatic transmission. And I mean, these guys reference a lot of good information. Um, but it does beg the question. We go back again. We keep to keep seem to be going around in circles as to the mainstream media and that lectern at Downing Street with Boris. We see Ritty, we see Valance in any argument, in any debates, whether that be about who's got the who supports the best football team to life-saving situations that vaccines are meant to be. Why are we only seeing these same guys up on the lectern and we're not seeing the likes of Dr. Bakhti or this top Belgium immunologist? Why are we just being given our information from very few minimal sources, Richard? Yeah, yeah, it's you know, I mean, what <laughs> is it because the, the 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 cases is not as strong as our government are making out? Potentially, that's you know, that's sort of the default instinctive answer that I have that they're not confident enough to stand up there and and you know almost go toe to toe with with these guys um, for our benefit for us to then make that informed decision. You know, you've got elections which, you know, two-party elections, let's say in the US, you know, that's, that's that's really, really, really good. That's really fair, isn't it? Two-party elections. But anyway, you have to two-party elections where they stand up and they debate their sides. And that, you know, why, why can't we have two? We had it for Brexit. Why can't we have it for for this? Um, Brexit, Brexiteers versus the non-Brexiteers, at least both sides, even though the, some of the claims are completely outlandish, totally wild, at least we had some debate um but that was that that yeah that that was a complete joke anyway Brexit but at least there was some debate um there is no debate here Mm. we do not hear from the other side we just we just don't and the other side are extremely qualified extremely qualified to be speaking on these matters probably more so um, than the people that are put in front of us. Because another thing to consider, let's say for lockdown, for example, if you don't have someone who is very, very qualified in understanding the effects of, let's say, um, unemployment, uh, a doctor or a scientist that really knows the effects of what happens when somebody becomes unemployed, what happens when somebody is locked in their house alone and they're over a certain age or what happens to children? If you don't have these top scientist experts, then, and I don't think that they do, then are they qualified to be saying you should be locking down um, on that point? On that point. So, yeah, unfortunately, we have not had the same debate regarding vaccines. Um, and, there, you know, there's also other medicines that people talk about that high high top top level doctors talk about um hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and the use of zinc vitamin d vitamin c there's a lot for people to look into um if they if they want and 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 if not then that's you know that's totally their decision but yeah as long as as long as people are aware that there is 
another side, a very, a very, um, a very important other side. I think that's all we can do, really, shine a bit of a light on it. Absolutely, um, I think you're absolutely right. In any walk of life, there is always a debate, but it seems like when it's come to locking down, when it seems like when it's come to the vaccine, there has been no debate. We've been told what is allegedly the best thing for us to do. And there is no one else saying, well, actually, why don't we look at this option? Or actually, this isn't great. It's just been you're being told what is best to do by the same four or five people. And there is no open discussion about it. So it's it's really interesting that that's where we've got to, in particularly in England, which is meant to be a very democratic country, but we've just got one follow these rules or else type situation. Um, going back to money, pharma funds for breaking the law and bad practices. I mean, yeah, you know, these these are things that are happening. A lot of people might not know about them, Richard. Give me a little bit more background on that. Well, I've just I've just you, you know pulled up Wikipedia here, um, and um, I'm looking at a list of pharmaceutical fines to 20, 2012. GlaxoSmithKline, who now own Pfizer, um, for one particular case, were fined three billion dollars, and this was it says here it was actually criminal. One billion of that three billion was for you know it was a criminal act. Two billion is civil. What they did was they paid kickbacks, like under the table bungs, I suppose, to physicians. And these physicians went on and made false and misleading statements about the safety of a particular drug. Um, the criminal element was off-label promotion, failure to disclose safety data, data sorry, failure to disclose safety data. That's just one of you know, a whole list, um, AstraZeneca's on this list, Pfizer's on this list, Johnson & Johnson is, is a huge one. That's that's come out. I've only been made aware of the um, asbestos in baby powder scandal. So Johnson & Johnson knew about, knew that they had asbestos in their baby powder for more than a decade and kept completely quiet about it. They was then exposed and paid, you know, a huge fine. Um so the list of fines is is big. Pfizer themselves, two point three billion off-label promotion kickbacks. Um, they broke the False Claims Act. Um, so yeah, the list the list is big. So then you know, first of all, some of this is criminal, um, criminal behaviour. So you know, you know, criminals are let's say fined um, or there's some punishment. But do you normally see a reward given to a criminal? So if a criminal commits a crime, pays the fine or pays the penalty, would you then see a reward given? Because the reward that they have is, in terms of vaccine making, total liability, uh, total um, immunity from liability. So you're dealing with companies who have conducted multiple um, crimes against the public and these same people now have immunity in terms of the safety of their products. Mm. Now, this whole debate that we've gone through today, um, yes, it is you know, purely from a sort of negative perspective, but I think that balances the positive that we constantly hear in the media. People just have to ask themselves, are they comfortable 
Mm. Um, knowing what we've told them today, especially when, you know, people can go off and look this stuff up themselves, which I hope they do. If they still feel comfortable knowing that these companies have total immunity and the MHRA, for example, our, our regulatory agency already predicted that there would be a lot of adverse reactions. They knew this in advance because what they did was they, they asked a, um, an artificial intelligence um, computer sort of company to build a tool that would help them keep track of, in their words, the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions. They knew they were going to have a high volume of adverse reactions. So they asked um, a software company mm. to develop an artificial intelligence tool to monitor the high level, the high volume of vaccine reactions that they expected. So it seems to be mixed messages. Uh, it's safe and effective, but we're going to have, we need artificial, artificial intelligence to look at, yeah. look at when it's not safe and effective. It's either safe and effective or it's not safe and effective. Yeah. I, I don't see how it can be both. Yeah, it's one or the other. It's one or the other. Yeah. If it's safe and effective, then you may have the odd one in a million yeah. um, adverse reaction, meaning you just need you just need a five-year-old to count up every person mm. who has an adverse reaction. You don't need artificial intelligence. Um, absolutely. Uh, and also with that, you know, there are some myths that people are saying are true or not true. My understanding is that until 2023, um, that this these vaccines are actually going to be considered to be experimental is that correct i think that's correct because they are following up with the trial participants the original trial participants all the way through until um you know at some point in 2022 or um i think in the u.s early early 2023 um so yeah it has been given emergency approval the other thing about the trial which people should also have a look at is normally in, in, in any kind of trial, what you'll have is you'll have a control group, a placebo group, mm. and you will have the group that are administered the, the drug or the vaccine. Now, in this case, the control group weren't, weren't given the usual um, sort of um, salt water mm -hmm. or it completely innate, non-harmful, like, you know, substance. Yeah. The control group were, were given another vaccine. They were given a meningitis vaccine. So they were comparing the COVID-19 vaccines in that group, 22,000 people yeah. approximately. And in the control group, they were given 22,000 people a meningitis vaccine, mm. not the saline solution, the sort of blank, non-harmful yeah. um, solution. So even, even, even people need to look at the trial. That people yeah. need to look at the trial as well. Um, when you take into account all the things that we haven't really, that haven't been highlighted. Absolutely. Um, Which is a key word. things that haven't been highlighted. But one thing that has been highlighted, I'd like to, to uh, maybe finish off on this subject, um, and it has been massively highlighted, and it's almost gone hand in hand with the vaccine, has been the vaccine passport. And... Again, to me, it seems a little bit like incentivizing. You know, you go to the supermarket, they give you a reward card. 
you know, you spend your money in there and at the end of the year you get you know, a free bottle of champagne or whatever the hell it is that you can do. Um, what are your thoughts on vaccine passports and the fact that we may soon have a split society where you will have the vaccine pubs, the non-vaccinated pubs, the vaccine weddings, non-vaccinated weddings, you know, it could go all sorts of different ways and how that might really split society, friends and family from each other by making a simple choice between a yes to the vaccine and no to the vaccine. Just a final thought on, on that for me, Rich. When you're dealing with something that has, as, as has been reported, you know, around a 99 or 98% survival rate, that's one thing to consider. Um, the second thing to consider in terms of a vaccine passport is um, transmission. The vaccine makers themselves have said they have no idea because they didn't look for it whether or not um, transmission is going to be reduced. So to be talking about a vaccine passport before you even know whether or not a vaccinated person is going to still pass it on, because a vaccinated person could could very well have it. We know that. Mm -hmm. All it's going to do is reduce symptoms. They've not said you won't get it. They've said someone vaccinated can still get it and many will still get it. And that's even in the 95% mm. effective group. The 5% group where it's not worked, that's separate. They're saying mm. that there's going to be 5% where it just doesn't work. Mm. Even in the 95% where, where it supposedly has worked, they can still get it. But all that's going to happen is their symptoms will be reduced. So if you've got it um, and you're, you know, contagious, because they're saying that um, asymptomatic is still tra transferring it, mm. right? So... What you're, what you're essentially looking at is a group of vaccinated people who could be just as um, capable of transmitting this virus as a group of unvaccinated. So I don't personally see how that passport's going to prevent anything. So what we could be saying is the passport is exactly that. It's just an incentive to get more people vaccinated yeah. rather yeah. than it being, you know, of factually for the benefit. I think that's correct. And a lot of people have already said that they're just going to have it. They're going to have this vaccine because they want to travel. Yeah, absolutely. And they've got family abroad. Many people are making their decision, basing their decision just on that. Yeah. Um, Which means so, that the incentive is working. Yeah, it's all part of, like, as you said earlier on, the marketing campaign. It's a very clear marketing mm. campaign that is, that is going on here. Um, if anybody's prepared to step back and look at it, you create the fear or, you, or the demand through the fear and you market the solution to the fear, even when you're just dealing with something that's, you know, not point less than 1% chance of causing you serious, serious harm or fatal harm, should mm. we say, less than 1% chance of that. 0.3%. 0.3%. Mm. It's... Um, if you base that, just so people know, it's not a number that I've worked out of the air. If you take that, there are 45 million adults in this country and you take that, there are now just under 130,000 people who have died from COVID, which I always caveat with having had a positive test within 28 days. You work that out as a percentage, that's 0.3. That's a 99.7% yeah. survival rate. So that isn't a made-up number. That is the numbers that you see very clearly on the BBC. So yeah. it is all very, very interesting. Mm. And when you're dealing with something that at best will reduce symptoms, it seems a bit heavy-handed. It seems a bit like overkill um, because you're just dealing with something that's going to reduce symptoms and the side effects 
for that for a 0.3% mortality just doesn't add up. No, um, not at all. Well, thank you today for today, Richard. Uh, hopefully we have been able to give people just a little bit of a, a glance and an insight into the other side of vaccines. You know, whatever you do, whatever you decide to do, we hope that you stay safe and we hope that we all end up getting to the end of that storm in whatever boat we're in. I'll just finish off by saying it just popped up on my screen on Sky News that uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization and numerous other bodies have declared the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is completely safe. And in other news, Dr. Howell Shipman is also a very good doctor. Take care. We will speak to you next week. Bye-bye.